Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Thanks for joining us for the podcast of Island Conversations. If you're on the big island of Hawaii, you may also listen to Island Conversations on the radio on Sundays at 6.30 a.m. on KWXX and at 7 a.m. on B93B97. And the interviews are rebroadcast the following Friday on KPUA 6.70 a.m. in Hilo. There are always so many questions about COVID-19, and once again, we're going to talk with somebody who's very involved with COVID-19 testing and is seeing patients with COVID-19 and more. We recorded the interview earlier this week. Dr. Scott Miskovich, you are a very busy man and one of the doctors most involved with COVID-19 testing and also seeing patients who have COVID-19. So I really appreciate your taking the time to talk. Aloha. Aloha. How are you, Sherry? Oh, I'm good. And I have so many questions. First of all, a study was published on July 2nd by scientists out of the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom about what is commonly called the G mutation of the coronavirus, I believe. And I know that a lot is unknown about this brand new coronavirus, but what can you tell us about this G mutation? Sherry, most of us now are very convinced, and I think the evidence shows that the G mutation is common now in the United States and likely throughout the world. Everyone has seen the image of the coronavirus. The coronavirus is a fat-soluble molecule with those little spikes that come off of it. Those little spikes are what attaches to the human cell, and they attach to the human cell at what's called the ACE2 receptor. Now, those little spikes early on in the coronavirus were not that strong. They would break off, they would be very friable, and what happened is in true Darwinism, that virus just did one minor small modification to make those little spikes stronger and more adherent. And most of us now believe that is why we're seeing some escalation of the contagious nature of the coronavirus. It was interesting. I was trying to describe this to some other people, and someone outside of healthcare says, Hey, Doc, it sounds like it's got more Velcro. And I'm like, Wow, what a great analogy. I love that because that's exactly it's sticking to the cell. And then those little tubes stick to your cell, and they inject these little uh, viral particles in there that have the ability for then the virus to start replicating and breeding. It then can be something that can easily get up into your nose or into your throat and doesn't necessarily have to get the whole way into your lungs. So that's what the G mutation is. Very important to note, it does not make it more virile, meaning it is not more deadly. It is just likely more contagious. The other thing is we don't really call this the significant type of mutation that we're worried about potentially in the fall. And that's where the virus becomes more deadly. That's a mutation we definitely don't want to see coming up in the fall or winter. So if this mutation is occurring, what in practical terms might be the impact on those who are working on developing a vaccine for COVID-19, for the coronavirus? 
this likely will have no effect whatsoever because this is just one amino acid on the chain and it doesn't change the uh, likely recognition of a vaccine. Since you mentioned vaccine, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but you know, when you really look at history, science, and virology, and vaccine production, we have to remember there was never an effective coronavirus vaccine that was able to be developed in medicine. And second issue, some of the realistic data that's coming out, because, you know, we're mostly hearing the global press spin on it and not the full scientific evidence. A lot of the evidence coming out right now is starting to say, well, you know, is it going to be 50% effective or 60% effective? Or how effective can we actually make a vaccine to this type of very unusual virus? This is not just a typical flu strain. And everybody probably understands, Sherry, think about flu. When we're giving flu shots during flu season, one year we'll say, this year's flu vaccine is really good. It's 70% effective or like the last two years, we had a year where it was 50% effective. Serology and producing vaccines is not a perfect science, especially when you have a virus that has come from the coronavirus group that jumps from animal to human in such a uh, drastic way. Well, like you said, you don't want to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I think your analogy to the flu shots is really good. At the national level, there's been a lot of positive thinking, and I'd like to say in some cases, it sounds to me like magical thinking, you know, like we always hope that there's going to be a perfect vaccine. But you're right, history has shown that many, many vaccines are not perfect for this kind of thing. For measles, it's pretty effective for mumps, chickenpox, those kind of things. But they seem to be very different diseases from coronavirus diseases. I don't want to be so much the bearer of grim news. I like to be really more of a realist and just tell the people the truth. If we could have right now 50 or 60 percent of the population become immune to contracting or spreading a coronavirus, the suffering, the death, everything would be just so much improved across our country. There's always this discussion that everyone probably has heard called herd immunity. Well, herd immunity, it's failing in Sweden, that's for sure. I just was privy to a paper out of University of Michigan, which I did spread to a bunch of experts that talked about the economic costs versus the loss of life and herd immunity. And it's devastating to think that you're going to have a massive amount of the population just die to create a large number of people that will then have been exposed to the virus and create immunity is not something we want to look at. But in that concept of herd immunity, you're usually talking about maybe 60 or 70 percent of the population will have developed the cells to fight this off. Therefore, the amount of spread is significantly reduced and it will be not as virile and won't create as much of the problem we're seeing Like, for example, in the mainland with the emergency rooms and the uh, ICUs and hospitals being overrun. I've been reading about that. Well, when you talk about herd immunity, do we develop herd immunity using both a vaccine and people getting it and then potentially becoming immune, which is not really known for this coronavirus because it's not been around long enough? Tell us about how we develop that herd immunity. That would be generally the concept, right? But now we have another major problem, and the major problem is right now the ability for our body to develop immunity naturally through our own immunoglobulins, the IgG especially, and then maintain it. 
right now we are starting to see some of the individuals who have contracted the disease initially will show their bodies are producing immunoglobulins, showing that they're developing antibodies to fight it, and then they're starting to faint. And so we're worried, and it's just such a big question mark. Will it last three months? Will it last two years? Will it last a shorter period of time? We don't know that. Then the other question will be, will that immunity provide enough defense? Now, most of us feel pretty sure that that will be better than nothing, but we just do not know how long our body will be able to hold on to those cells to fight this off. Dr. Miskovich, you've actually been doing antibody testing as well as COVID-19 testing. Is there anything you've seen in the antibody testing, such as the percent of people who do develop antibodies that you can share with us at this time? Are you far enough along with that? Oh, yeah. The way you have to do antibody testing, Sherry, we did it as soon as we had that valid serum antibody that became available. What you want to do is you want to do snapshots in time. We did, through our group, about 2,000 antibody tests, and we did them on three islands. I already had enough of a evaluation that I think epidemiologically we could say that the percentage of people exposed showing antibodies was less than 1%. And we were targeting specific groups in our first push for antibody testing, first responders, healthcare workers, airline, Uber drivers, all of the people in a tourism industry economy that had a lot of exposure to people from the Asian continent or even from the U.S. mainland, that might be a skewed percentage of people who might have had exposure. The second big group that I really feel confident also with the data that I had was there were quite a few people that went from the month of January on up to mid-March, April, before we had broad-scale testing available, that contracted a very deep cough and fever, and they were down for a week or two, and their entire family got it, and they were missing work. And what does that sound like? Most of us would say, sounds like you had COVID. Those people we did antibody testing, actually that turned out to probably be about 70% of everyone we tested that had those symptoms, four or five total individuals where that turned out to show that antibodies were present. So it does appear that we had another probable viral process. could have been bacterial. It could have been multiple things, but it was not coronavirus. I do want to talk with you about testing, including on the Hawaii Tourism Authority website, which is where the State Department of Health is posting its rules for testing. It talks about not having a PCR test, which is the test that you've always spoken about, but talks about needing a valid COVID-19 nucleic acid amplification test, NAAT, which they say replaces the PCR test. So talk about this NAAT test and how it is the same or different from your PCR test. They probably should have put a clarification on the website. That is an acronym for, you know, as you said, nucleic acid amplification test. The NAAT is just a general test description called nucleic acid amplification test. It is definitely referring first and foremost to the PCR. PCR is a type of NAAT test. And then there is another method that is based off the type of machine that the laboratory has. It is another type of amplification technique where the virus itself is kind of multiplied 
and more copies of it are able to be identified to increase the sensitivity. So there is a second variety of machine that also is included in that NAAT process. So the standard PCRs are included in that. That's really good to clarify that. When you said the G mutation has made the coronavirus attach itself perhaps lower down in the nose or higher up in the lungs, does that change how you do your testing with the swabs? Because what we're mostly familiar with is the deep swab, meaning deep in the nose, unpleasant, uncomfortable. Is that changing? No, it isn't at this point. We still would recommend that testing is still the PCR testing. There's a lot of research being done to show can we get effective samples in less invasive ways. There are some techniques that I'm using from my role as a mainland consultant. I've been very fortunate to be dealing with the heads of the main laboratories as well as chief scientists. And there are some ways that we can modify the technique to try to get, first and foremost, would like to get lung sputum samples. So you don't want to put suction down in someone's chest. But if someone can cough up a deep chest secretion, that would be, in our mind, fairly parallel to the PCR. Now, there are a lot of issues where people are trying to do nasal swabs and throat swabs. Most of the data clearly still shows that those are not as accurate, but there's more research showing that maybe, depending on where you are in the disease itself, how contagious you are, they could be accurate. So it's a moving target, which is the problem, and that's why we go PCR, because that is the most reliable single place you can get in that deep nasopharyngeal area to get the most accurate. Well, most of the testing sites here on the Big Island definitely do the deep nasal swab, but I was kind of surprised to learn recently that there's at least one large healthcare provider here on the island that actually has the patient do their own nasal swab, which seems to me to be a recipe for inaccuracy. And then one person posted on Facebook that where she went, they did a cheek swab. Comment on that. Having a patient do their own, it just makes me think it's not going to be that accurate because nobody wants to jam a swab up their nose. Uh, Very good point. What about the dry nose? You don't always have secretions in your nose, depending on how you're going, especially if you're asymptomatic. So the accuracy of a nasal swab when you don't really have any major secretions in your nose is just going to give people a false sense of security. So I believe that is not something we should rely on right now. Then the cheek swab, it's way down on the list. Now, through my mainland consulting roles and having just returned from the mainland, I've worked with a large group, and they do have a nice technique, which I am using now as my second choice for people who cannot do a deep PCR test. Like, for example, we're doing a lot of nursing home testing, and sometimes people don't cooperate, and there are times in the field when we're testing where people just will not tolerate the deep PCR. But I'll describe it briefly. We have people ask them to take a drink about 30 seconds to a minute before we do the swab. You then have them turn their nose and mouth into their sleeve, kind of in the bicep region, turn their head sideways, and attempt to cough three to five times with the effort to bring up some secretions from their chest if possible. They're then to hold that towards the roof of the mouth. You then take the swab, 
and you go all through the, the gums. You're going in front of the lips, underneath the tongue, both on the sides of the cheek. It's a 20-second swab, and at the very end, then you're going up on the roof of their mouth and trying to collect that secretion they brought up from their chest. So that, from my standpoint, with the science people I'm working with, is an alternative technique. The other test is the antigen test. What's the antigen test? The PCR is attempting to look for essentially the RNA, the the type of genetic fingerprint of the virus itself, very specific. In general, the virus in all cells of our body are made by these building blocks of protein. And these protein cells have a specific signature. So the antigen detects the proteins in those cells. And so the problem why it's slightly less accurate is in the PCR, you can't go through that multiplication aspect and breed it and have it grow or have more of them present versus the antigen. It is what it is in the sample. And so the antigen test is something that is very good, about 93.8% positive, 94% about in the active phase of the disease. So in that five-day window, if someone is coughing, having fever, or actively shedding and producing the virus, the secretions through either the nasal, pharyngeal, or that uh, cough extraction can pick up enough. I have 10 of the machines right now. I can produce about 40 to 50 tests per hour. Just with what I have, I could do 10,000 tests in a day. It's available, it's less expensive, but it is definitely not the gold standard of the PCR. If the antigen test comes back positive, then usually it's 100% is positive. The amount of false positives is nearly zero. But if you're negative, you're still following up with the PCR. At this stage, since this is about a month into its effectiveness, we're still following with the PCR. But For example, I will take it to the nursing homes when I'm in the acute phase wards. I'll be using it immediately because then we can use it to quarantine people, to move them. If we start getting more challenged with resources for testing and we're in the field and someone shows up and they have a fever of 101 and they've been coughing for four days and they've been exposed to someone they think who has COVID, you get the results in a couple minutes. It's a nice test to have. And just a brief interruption to remind you, this is the podcast of Island Conversations, and I'm Sherry Bracken. Today, we're talking with Dr. Scott Miskovich of the Premier Medical Group. He has spearheaded a whole lot of the testing here in the state of Hawaii. And when we continue, we'll talk more about testing, what other countries have done, how to deal with outbreaks in nursing homes, and more. Next week, I'll be talking with Assistant Police Chief Robert Wagner about how the Hawaii County Police Department deals with reports of missing children and adults, and how much of an issue this is in Hawaii County. Before we get back to our conversation with Dr. Miskovich, let's hear from our very generous sponsor, KTA Superstores. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. Well, Dr. Miskovich, as testing demand on the mainland has grown, 
our testing capacity here in the state may have been reduced because of a diversion of supplies to the mainland. And I've actually not heard yet that we've had any problem with having access to tests. But what should the state be doing to increase testing capacity if that's an issue because of the potential diversion of supplies to the mainland? First of all, I'd like to say, Sherry, I've been in touch with all the leadership of the main lab, and it is an issue. Right now, we have um, dropped our, our testing capabilities down to less than 60% of what we did have. We're probably just in the mid-2,500 to maybe 2,800 tests a day that we can produce as a state. The State Department of Health did say that they had stockpiled I think 25,000 kits of reagents, but again, their machine only can do, I think, either 250 to 400 tests a day, so that will slightly increase our capabilities. But most of uh, the data that I have from the experts I'm dealing with, we would like our state to be pushed up to having the ability to do 10,000 tests a day. So my recommendation, and I have testified to the Health COVID Human Services Committee, I think it's a simple answer. We have a lot of CARES Act money that actually has to be spent by the end of the year. It should be used to go to diagnostic laboratories and clinical laboratories, which are our two main labs here in the state of Hawaii and have been for many, many years. We should assist them in purchasing two high-throughput machines that can do 2,000 tests each. That would be another 8,000 tests, which would take us up to 10,000. We should be at 10,000 right now in preparation. We should not be sitting as a state waiting until we overrun our ability to test our population, and we need to be proactive about this right away because there is an enormous amount of CARES money that is supposed to be spent on testing, which is just sitting idle right now in our state. I believe that um, right now, here's the real issue this poses. DLS can send their labs to a mainland affiliate, but we might have a 7- to 10-day return on those tests. We are now getting a solid amount of contact tracing available through the State Department of Health. But what value is having excellent contact tracing when it takes 10 days to get the result? and the person has gone through 10 days more of exposing other people. We need to continue where we have been over the last, say, two months, which is a 24-hour turnaround. It's been amazing to have those results back on a regular basis within 24 hours. Just imagine, 24 hours, that person knows, they're isolated, their family's tested within the next 12 hours, the contacts are contacted within another 12 hours. That's how you deal with this virus. If you can enclose and do everything within 24 hours of that test result, even 12, which we've been successfully able to do, you will flatten this curve again. That's what we need to do. The state has been in turmoil about reopening tourism from out of state without a 14-day quarantine. If you, Dr. Scott Miskovich, had to make the decisions about how to reopen tourism, what would you want to see happen? Well, first of all, I would tell you, under no circumstances do I believe it is the right time to reopen tourism. 
And the reason is we have to turn to the mainland and look at the absolute crises that's occurring on the mainland. We have all-time highs again today. We have states that are having their intensive care units overrun. We have more states that are hitting their all-time highs. The other reason it's not practical is my family wants to come to Hawaii, but they can't find where they're going to get it tested. They'll get a result back in three days. So it's just not practical right now. To finalize the real answer, knowing the pathology of this disease, knowing the prevalence, knowing the contagious periods. This should be followed by a second test. After you have a first test, you should have a second test. That second test should be within seven days of the first test. I know people are going to say, well, how are they going to do it? Well, that's something we have to be working on at the same time. We have to find a way to have people have a second test. Look at Bermuda's testing. Look at Alaska's testing. Look at Iceland. There are countries who are successfully beginning to reopen that are using more effective techniques that will protect their population. And I don't believe a single test three days prior is enough to protect Hawaii from the surge of the disease across the U.S. mainland especially. Even on the mainland, I've heard departments of health and emergency room doctors say that even they are unable to get test results on the mainland, sometimes in less than seven days, which they're expressing the same concerns that you are, that people may be contagious, but they're out there infecting people because there's been no test results. And it sounds like what you're talking about also speaks to the need to our state to ramp up our testing capability. So if people do arrive here, we can give them a test if need be and then they can get a result, we can get a result. Exactly. And I will also say, Sherry, that I've been very fortunate. I have been hired uh, by an organization called PAE and another organization called AMI. These are two large U.S.-based State Department, government, health, and international contracting groups that are working now on COVID and have asked to respond to COVID across the United States and internationally. And so I've been hired as their COVID testing expert. I just returned from D.C. and Annapolis meeting with our teams, and I've been able to contact all the heads of all the main laboratories. We're also looking at the new technologies coming out. And this group right now, we are talking about making agreements, well, we've already made agreements, to be accessing um, 500,000 to a million tests over a very short period of time. So, I have that duality where I'm actually frontline looking at what's going on and actively involved in the process in the mainland and international. So I'm actually able to bring a lot of my local experience, but I also have another half of my life where I've done a lot of work in government, healthcare and government service prior to being involved here. And I have training and certifications in different things that make this a nice full circle for my career, whether it's designing quarantine facilities or integrating right within uh, military assets with civilian assets, which is a lot of what I'm doing. I think it's good for our state that you're doing this. And I was going to ask you about your work nationally. You have talked about nursing homes, and I feel like we in the state and certainly on the Big Island have been very lucky because nursing homes have been very cautious. But we have had a couple of outbreaks you have praised Halinani Nursing Home, and I think there's other nursing homes on Oahu that do have some cases. What can you tell us about nursing homes and the best way to protect this particularly vulnerable population and whether it's actually spreading in nursing homes, given that there have been some outbreaks over there? 
Uh, yeah, boy, this is a big, big issue that I think we all have to be very careful with at this stage. We have another outbreak in a nursing home right now, and we're going through the same aggressive measures that we did with Holly Nani, and we're getting great participation from the staff. There's another outbreak in two small adult living facilities, and then we have even small facilities where you have two or three people in a residential home through the foster home or through the adult care organizations. That is a crisis waiting to happen right now, and we need to be proactive. Oahu, of course, is our outbreak. The Wahiwa Hospital has a whole ward that they were preparing for this, and I went and visited it with Dr. Yuzawa, who is the Hyema rep. He's a reserve colonel. He's the Hyema rep for the adult living and senior citizens since he's a geriatrician with Hawaii Pacific Health. We have a wonderful facility that's ready to go that if there is a positive in one of these small homes that does not have any capabilities like these larger homes, these people need to be immediately transferred to these facilities. The second thing these facilities could do is provide a safety valve if our hospitals get too full to discharge these patients in that are not prepared to go back to a care home that may need some extra care. And so I am very concerned that we have not actively pushed this up at the state level. I believe right now the Big Island should be working to identify a facility. As you probably well know, Dr. Akiona is our medical director for the Big Island full-time there. I have a team with Premier on the Big Island, and uh, we're working right with the mayor's office, right with Hawaii Emergency Services to try to identify a facility that is prepared and ready to react to an outbreak on the Big Island. Just as in anything, how do you respond? Prevention, right? We have to be prepared. We have to have enough tests in this state. We have to have enough access to care. We have to have enough access to beds. But yes, now 95 to 96% or more of all outbreaks in care homes are from employees that are ill, that are bringing it in. So I do want to put some responsibility on the people that are out there working in these facilities. I believe they have a higher social responsibility. I believe that if you're working in a care home and all those lives are at risk, then I think you should try to be careful, wear your mask, do your social distancing. I don't think you should be going to the bars at night. This is people's lives. You're in a very difficult situation because if you bring it into the care home, actually people can die. So all of us need to take that concept of that social responsibility If we have Kapuna in our own home, come on, everybody do their part. And that's important throughout the state. This is not where we only need to turn to our Department of Health or to our government to solve this. There still is an enormous issue with the importance of masks, social distancing, reduced gatherings, and that is amplified by the G mutation because it's just so much easier to spread. And you're echoing what everybody really should understand. I was very disappointed when I saw that there were employees at the Hawaii State Hospital who knowingly went to work sick. I mean, they acknowledged it, but they felt like they couldn't take the time off and they helped spread it in that facility. So, yeah, people need to step up because we do have an obligation to society to do an awful lot of things, including this. Yeah. And then the other thing that I can tell you, which is something that we need to talk about a lot more, helping the contact tracers, because 
we're finding that people are a little bit reluctant to come up and say, oh, I was with this person this night, or I was with this employee, or I went to this second job, because they believe it might look poorly on them. Now it's not the time to think that way. What's going to look poorly is if you do not tell your coworkers or your family members or other associates that you did come down with the disease, which could put their lives at risk or other people around them. The second issue I do want to uh, discuss with the state is the need to have the right contact tracers with the right demographics. There's different ways to speak to different people telling them they have the disease. There are different ethnic groups that may need to have different word choices to understand what this disease is about. So it's not just kind of reading off a script. So there has to be a lot of finesse that we need to use with our contact tracing to really touch home with different groups. There are countries such as South Korea and Vietnam that seem to have been very effective in tamping down their COVID-19 cases. What are some of these other countries doing that we can learn from? I've studied South Korea extensively. I mean, before I even started my testing methods I developed from South Korea, one of the things that they're doing, and Germany did the same thing, is technology, Singapore, Taiwan. They use technology a lot. They probably did things that we would have pushed back in the country because people are going to say, oh, it's their civil right being violated to know where they are at what time on their mobile. But uh, there are different devices that are available, even on most iPhones right now, that could be activated, that could show where you went and how long you were there. Those countries were using that type of tracking. And so, for example, if you were in a restaurant and you knew you were in the restaurant at this time and someone became positive and they turned over their iPhone or cell phone data, then you could get an alert on your phone to tell you, by the way, you were in a restaurant and you were this close to an individual without giving up their name. We're not talking about civil liberties and their name, but using that geographic location was something they did. The other thing is they are way more mandating quarantine. Quarantine is not an option. In South Korea, if you violate your quarantine, you're arrested and fined. You could spend time in jail. I mean, they were GPS tracking you when you were quarantined. They were GPS tracking you in the place where you said you were. You had one chance if you went out of that place and you would get an immediate call. If you did not go back in, police would be knocking at your door and you would be taken to a locked quarantine facility. I'm not saying we're going to do that in our country, but you know we do need to understand when we look at the successes of that country that there were probably things that will not happen in our country. Germany had a lot more cooperation. They were doing the same things. So if you were positive, you were taken to a facility. That was just across the board in Germany. And I do believe that is one lesson we could learn is to have more broad, accessible quarantine than just telling people to go hang out at home. And I don't think that's an effective method right now. I think we should make offers available to have people taken into facilities, which I know we've been told that they exist, but I think that the utilization of these has been fairly nil. Here on the Big Island, as you know, we had a case where a mother came from an infected area on the mainland. Her daughter continued working as a weight person, and 
infected her, there was no quarantine requirement for the daughter, and apparently the mother and the daughter were in close contact, which is not unusual of someone staying in your house. But if we had a quarantine facility, that would have made their distancing easier and might have prevented the waitress from getting it and prevented her place of employment from having to shut down again for two weeks, which put everybody else out of work. You know, and that's one of the issues is the economy and balancing being able to reopen the economy in an effective way. And I know you said, for example, you are concerned about us reopening too soon. I'm just hoping that the governor and the mayors and everybody can come to some agreement soon to figure out how to do this. Well, Sherry, when I was on CNN just recently, they asked me uh, for right now for the states of Florida, Texas, Arizona, to not follow the model, which did work for us very effectively. And I will give uh, definite congratulations to our leadership for making the move. But they need to shut it down, all the restaurants, all the bars, work from home, do not go out. And those states will see significant less loss of life in two cycles of the virus, two 14-day periods or one month. If they would shut those states down right now, they would have that curve so far on the way down that it would be much quicker reopening economically than closing. But I do not think that there's a political will with how separated our country is in their understanding or beliefs or believing this is a political disease. This isn't about politics. This is about people's lives. This is the most virulent pandemic our planet has seen in at least 100 years and possibly more. And we are on track right now. If we're not doing anything, we're easily on track for 2 million Americans to lose their lives. And that is just not acceptable in this modern day and age. Everything you say leads us back to testing. And that's very interesting to me because, as you know, the State Department of Health has been at times sounding reluctant to test a large number of people, despite the fact that 40 percent of the cases are known to be asymptomatic. So I guess testing really is part of the key here. I would like to finish answering the question you asked me, which is what made South Korea, Germany, Taiwan, all those countries that have done very well, Iceland, every one of them starts, number one, is testing and aggressively testing with aggressive follow-up and repeating with aggressive quarantine and isolation, you know, then social distancing. But testing is number one. It has to be. We need to expand our testing. 10,000 is the minimum we need to be proactively looking at. But we may need to push our testing up to 5,000 a day if possible. If you look at what some of these other countries are doing, they were easily hitting those same ratios per capita of having the accessibility of testing. Because the one thing that DOH says that is correct is that testing is a snapshot in time. Yes, it is. But you've got to keep taking the snapshot when you have this active virus, which is decimating populations. And so having the ability to do it and do it again and do it again and continue to follow up and in a perfect world, have your whole population tested rapidly and have results so you could quarantine everyone. Look at some of the really interesting examples we have right here in our state of Hawaii. I had my strike teams over in Molokai and Molokai had a positive in their biggest grocery store. We went aggressively tested everyone. There was a second positive. The island shut down. You couldn't fly in. People socially distanced. We haven't had a positive in Molokai in what? Two and a half months? Hana, 
did the same thing. They closed the road. Lanai, they closed the island. There's no positives. That's because you identified the disease, you separated it, you quarantined. We went back and retested in Molokai. We went back and retested in Hana to be sure that there were no active positives and spread. And there's no active disease. That's how you deal with this. Dr. Scott Miskovich, what else do you want to add before we say aloha? I will be very interested to share with the people of Hawaii some of the experiences that I'm going to be having in the very near future in the mainland. And I was asked this before, after I returned, and I did make the comment that I've been to the future, and it's terrifying. And I hope that we can start seeing the curve turn in the mainland. I hope that common sense prevails. But the other thing that I hope is that we continue to do what we did as a state that made us so successful. The biggest success story in the state of Hawaii is you, the people of Hawaii. You are the ones that flattened the curve because when this first came up, you listened, you went home, you didn't have gatherings, you wore your masks, you understood social distancing. I use the analogy, I think the people of Hawaii originally treated this like we do when we have a hurricane warning or tsunami warning. We buttoned up, turned it on again, Hawaii, and do the same thing, and we can get the same result. Dr. Scott Miskovich, thank you so much. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you, Sherry. And a huge thank you to you, the listeners, for being with us for this discussion with Dr. Scott Miskovich. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Until next time, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.